This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Robert Augustus Masters. Robert Augustus Masters is an integral psychotherapist, relationship expert, and spiritual teacher whose work blends the psychological and physical with the spiritual, emphasizing embodiment, emotional literacy, and the development of relational maturity. He's the author of 13 books, including Transformation Through Intimacy and Spiritual Bypassing. Available through Sounds True, Robert has released the audio learning series, Knowing Your Shadow, Becoming Intimate with All That You Are, and a new book called Emotional Intimacy, a comprehensive guide for connecting with the power of your emotions. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Robert and I spoke about what he calls emotional literacy and the lack of emotional literacy in our culture today. We talked about differences in cultural conditioning between men and women when it comes to expressing emotions. And we talked about the need to develop a toolkit to identify and work skillfully with anger. Robert and I also talked about his own experiences with fear, particularly related to working with the fear of death. Here's my conversation in some very deep waters with Dr. Robert Augustus Masters. To begin with, Robert, I'd love to know what your understanding is of emotion, emotion in general, if you would sort of your thesis statement about what emotions are. Well, emotion is a great big topic, as the length of my book to attest to, because in emotion, we don't just have feeling, we also have uh, social factors, cognition, our conditioning, all working together at the same time. So it's quite a complex thing. I sometimes say emotion is the dramatization of feeling. It's feeling given more context. And at the same time, emotion is very, very simple. We all have emotions. We're we're born with them. Uh, We develop them. They, They are with us as long as we're alive. They're always there, even if they're way in the background. So given that that, they're such an essential part of our our human makeup, uh, I think it's really important to to not just experience them fully, but to know them really well so that they don't end up taking over. Because in our language, we often have metaphors that suggest that we were consumed by our emotion, our emotions got the better of us. All these things implying that we somehow are the victims of them, whereas what I've found is they are wonderful allies. Even the so-called darkest, dirtiest emotion is an ally if we approach it skillfully. 
But now you said something very interesting. You know, I've heard people talk about emotions in terms of our feelings and that they have a physiological component. But now you're bringing in that they have a cultural component and you also mm-hmm. mentioned a cognitive component. So help me understand this picture that you're creating of what an emotion is and these different factors that make up emotion. Well, say, with, say if there's a rush of anger you feel. You're just driving along and in a split second you have a rush of rage. Someone's cut you off. You're very tired. You have different reasons. That that arises quicker than thought. It's just the rush. It's the pure biological portion of anger. A few moments later, context kicks in. Cognition. You start. Maybe you have a thought about the person who cut you off in traffic, or the thought, or perhaps that maybe they're in a hurry to get to the hospital. In other words, the mind comes in, and that fleshes out this this feeling more. And your conditioning also. If you have a have an aversion to getting angry, or you've uh, we're in a household where anger was handled badly, and if you're in a culture where the expression of anger is, is, is uh, suppressed quite a bit, all that's going to play a part in how you end up expressing it. Mm-hmm. And in any emotional uh, arising, we need to take into account, what's my mind doing? To what extent is my conditioning playing in? For example, if we get reactive with an emotion, um, what are the cultural pressures on me? Every culture tends to have facial display rules, like sometimes you're not supposed to show a certain feeling. If you grow up with that, it becomes very hard to kind of go against it since it's been ingrained since we were very young. So all of this has to be taken into account when dealing with emotion. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Now, Robert, I know in this new book, you've really laid out very systematically how people can identify what emotion they're feeling at any given time. And to begin with, I'd like to know a little bit more about how you came up with this cartography. I came up with it when I took a really good look at how I've been working with people the last three decades and how I've been working with them emotionally, specifically. And I saw this as a natural progression. Not that I always went step by step, but I saw it as being a very useful thing to share with, with the world at large. These are, these are steps towards uh, deeper emotional health. So in looking at how you've been working with people, you came up with, here's all of the different emotional experiences I've watched people encounter? Oh, yes. Yes. And, and, and just to take one emotion like fear, there's so much to say about fear. Um, it may not show that overtly in people, but it can, it can be running their lives. And fear can come in many forms. Anxiety, worry, angst, terror, panic, paranoia. And as I teased it apart, it's as if I became more intimate with that emotion. And in myself, too. I mean, I was the laboratory for myself because I've been working on myself my whole life since I was a young adult. So I got to see the value of turning toward a difficult emotion like fear. Not in a foolhardy way, but step by conscious step, getting to know it treating it not like a problematic it, but as, in a sense, um, something that could become reclaim me. Because when I went close to my own fear, I al- almost always would see it personified at a certain point as younger versions of me, and which, of course, awakened my heart more. I felt more compassion. The more compassion I felt for that fearful me, the less afraid I was. It's as if I could hold that fearfulness close to me, embrace it, and that caused an expansion in me when fear the container of fear expands, we usually find ourselves not so afraid. We're just a little more more excited than afraid. So it came about from a very 
um, deep exploration of, of uh, my fear, others' fear, and not just throwing um, cookie-cutter diagnosis at it, but look, working with each one individually and seeing how does one go from saying they're afraid to actually being okay with being afraid and actually turning that energy into an alliance for one. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to go quite a bit more into fear and these different expressions, these different nuances of fear. But before we do, in your book on emotional intimacy, you identify what you call seven primary or core emotions, and one of them is fear. But then you also have anger, joy, sadness, shame, disgust, and surprise. And uh, to talk about surprise for a moment, I was surprised when I saw this list of seven core emotions. Surprised meaning I was like, I was completely with you with fear, anger, joy, and sadness. Those four seemed completely Mm -hmm. core to me. Mm -hmm. But then you added shame, disgust, and surprise. And I thought, how did he come up with this as the definitive list of seven (laughs) core emotions? Well, it never can be fully definitive because many emotion theorists have have their own list. That's the list that made the most sense to me, with surprise being the real lightweight there. In fact, I was going to have a chapter on surprise in the book, but I I needed to shorten the book a bit, so the surprise chapter was one of the first victims. It was also the shortest chapter in the book, because surprise, once it's arisen, it passes. You can't be surprised, and 10 seconds later, you're still surprised. It's, It's gone so quickly. And disgust is an emotion that, uh, shows up very early in life. It shows up um, in infants when they reject food. There's the facial expression, the nose crinkling, the upper lip rising. You can see that in any adult who's feeling disgusted by a situation or another person. It's, to me, I looked at it deep and I see this is a primary emotion. This is not an amalgam of other emotions. And shame, I think shame shows up very early. We can see shame in other mammals, like a cringing dog or a very young child that has not done a task the way that perhaps should have been done or they think it should be done, the head hangs, there's this familiar droop and sag of shame at a very early age before it even has much of a cognitive element. Whereas I think guilt comes later, contempt comes later, these compound emotions come later on. Now, what do you make of the statement that you made that different emotional theorists come up with different core emotions? I mean, how is someone supposed to understand that? I've, I mean, I've looked at the literature years ago pretty thoroughly, and I've, I was, was bewildered by the vast range of, of what were considered to be basic emotions, or some said there were no such things as basic emotions, that emotions were just simply a type of cognition. There was such a wide range. So I guess I would attribute it to each person's um, either experience of emotion or the theoretical understanding of it. For me, it has to do with all experiential. It's what I've witnessed in the, in, the, in, the, in the therapy chambers for decades. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it seems that part of what your goal is in this book on emotional intimacy is helping people become more literate, you could say, more fluent in knowing what they're feeling in any given moment. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about why you think emotional literacy is so rare in our culture today. If you think it is, it seems to me that it is, but if you think think it it is... is, And it's still rare which is surprising, but I think it's part, uh, one of the main reasons is, is that we don't have an emotional literacy 101 in our school system. We overvalue still intellectual intelligence, and perhaps kinesthetic to some degree, but emotional intelligence, emotional literacy tends to be pushed in the background. We, you know, 
I think young, I've seen young children learn about emotions, learning about their anger, their fear, naming it. And it's really helpful to be able to say, here's fear, here's anger, here's shame. That can be taught very early, and not just in an intellectual way. It can be taught in an experiential way, but it's not part of our system. Because in our culture, we devalue emotion. We still, we tend to still associate being emotional with being female, being uh, rational with being male. There's that. There's a problem in that, a huge problem, because then emotion is treated as lesser, just like femaleness has been treated as lesser for a long period of history, and still is in many ways. So part of bringing emotion to the foreground is to is to bring it in the foreground, honor it, and, and say this is worth teaching, and this is worth knowing. And in fact, any relationship I see in couples therapy where the, the couple is not doing well, there's almost always, always an emotional difficulty. They don't know enough about their various emotions. They don't know when they're being aggressive instead of angry. They don't understand when they're shaming the other person, even with good intentions. Once that's exposed and known, relational intimacy deepens. Now, tell me more. If you were suddenly in charge of the school system and were given the project to help young children develop emotional literacy, how would you handle such a project? What would you recommend? I'd, I'd be so happy to start with it. It was happening. I obviously would gather around me people who were also emotionally literate, passionate about teaching, had had the ability to convey it, and just implement uh, some pilot programs where emotions, emotional literacy was taught, how to identify them, ways to express them, and, and done in an age-appropriate fashion. Because when you teach a 6-year-old about anger, it's very different than teaching a 15-year-old, but both can be taught. Mm-hmm. And most adults haven't learned that, especially males who have to learn the basics about emotion. Somebody's at the ripe old age of 40 or 50 or 60. For example, I'll often ask a man who's new to therapy what he's feeling at a certain point, and he will almost invariably look away, look up at the ceiling, um, and do anything rather than just say, I'm feeling sad, I'm angry, I feel hurt. Once he learns that he doesn't have to do it that way, he can just simply be direct, he learns very quickly. I see men being just as uh, capable of, of emotional literacy as women, but they've been conditioned even more than women to step back from it. But I think it would be wonderful to, to do that, to have that implemented, to somehow have that come about. And even though it's difficult, Robert, to make you know gender-sweeping statements, what would you say is distinct between men and women when it comes to developing emotional literacy? What are the distinct challenges in general, general sort of, if you took a broad yeah. brush well, to the top? So much of it, of course, is culturally conditioned. But say in our culture, we have less flattering labels for women's anger than men. So anger as a result of this is less of a resource for many women than it is for men. It's a, in other words, a more legitimate expression for, for men in general in our culture. And anyone that's cut off from their anger is going to have more difficulty finding their power protecting their boundaries, they're going to have less resources at their fingertips. And I think it's important to differentiate the way males and females are are taught about anger in our culture. So many little girls are directed away from that. So many little boys are encouraged to not only get be with their anger, but to let it mutate into aggressiveness and have that be okay. So there's that, that huge distinction. Then with sadness, we have the opposite. Everyone needs to cry. Everyone has sadness. And, and Girls, of course, have more permission to go into that. Boys, less. I see in therapy when a male, a man breaks down, 
Usually it's more difficult for him to get to his tears. There's a layer of shame to go through. Women, easier. Of course, I mean very general, but for a lot of men, it's very hard. It's not uncommon to see men will tell me they haven't cried for 20 years or 25 years. And when they cry, it's like a, it's like a desert suddenly being flooded by this beautiful storm. But it takes addressing the shame they have around crying and cutting through the condition that says they shouldn't go there or they maybe can only cry a few manly tears, but no weeping, no sobbing, no full-out expression. So if the piece of cultural conditioning were either taken away or if it was radically different, do you think that men and women, from what you know of our biology, that we are equally capable of a depth and nuanced sense of emotional literacy? I think the depth is equal. That's my strong sense. I think the, the more nuanced quality, I think women have a bit of an advantage. I mean, anatomically, the thicker, thicker corpus callosum between the, the fiber network between the two halves of the brain is more back and forth between women, so there's more of a, a whole-brained response to, to um, emotional issues. Men tend to be more split. But again, this is something that can be overcome through practice. But I think women have a bit of an advantage when it comes to verbal fluency uh, in emotional contexts. I've seen many women, for example, when they finally tap into their anger in psychotherapeutic contexts, get more lucid, more clear. Instead of doing what the literature says they'll be doing, which is they get more muddied as they get angry, the angrier they are, the more fluid the speech is, the more colorful, the more vital, the more nuanced, and the more vulnerable. Part of men's difficulty here, of course, is that they are less vulnerable in their anger, so they, have, they, they tend to be less articulate in the expression. There's less heart in it. Now, you're saying something very interesting about anger, so let's go into that for a bit, especially sure. since it's one of the seven primary or core emotions. What do you mean about being vulnerable in one's anger? What do you mean by that word, the use of the word vulnerable? Well, it sounds like an oxymoron at first, vulnerable anger, but I'm sure we've all had experiences being with someone or was perhaps ourselves. When we got angry, our tears were there at the same time. And if someone's vulnerable in their anger, if I'm angry at you and I'm vulnerable, it doesn't mean I'm not going to be heated. I'm not going to be forceful. I'm not going to be emphatic. But it means that I haven't forgotten that I care about you as a human being. It's not just intellectual. You can actually feel that Robert is actually caring about me even though he's heated. And it's not easy to do this, but it is doable to bring heart to one's anger. There's plenty of guts, there's a lot of blood flow, there's all the adrenaline, but to bring heart, to not forget the other is human, not to not dehumanize them. I think women are far more capable of this than men to bring their heart into their anger, but I think men can learn it too, to where there's a vulnerability, a transparency, and in that, it's pretty hard to blame the other person or shame them, and it's really hard to get aggressive, almost impossible when you're that vulnerable, because who wants to do damage to another person when you can actually feel their humanity. This is a, a, a kind of anger that's harder to access, but we all, it doesn't, you don't have to have your heart fully open, but to have some degree of heart when you're angry at someone else you care about makes it more likely they'll hear you, let you in, have a healing dialogue. Take an example where somebody feels trespassed by somebody in some way. Maybe somebody, you know, broke into my house and, you know, destroyed a lot of things, and I'm really angry about it. And you're saying even in a moment like that, I could no. access, because I'm curious in, in certain kinds Not of... Not you're saying, Tammy, because then, I mean, that, that's, that's, I think sometimes we have to start with right where we are. Like, if that happened to me, I'd be outraged. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be concerned about bringing my heart into it. I would not want to 
to make the damage worse. But I would I would be fully in my anger, and maybe later on I'd start to, I'd start to feel some compassion for the other. But I would not pressure myself to feel that initially. Just like when we work with a couple that is letting their anger start to flow, we often give them a little permission to let it be a little messy at first, a little reactive. Then it once it's flowing, now I give them direction so they can start to make it cleaner, more heart, less blame, less shame. Sometimes we just have to rage. There's a, there's a time and a place to really rage. There really is. I've seen, for example, in the middle of grief, someone's just had a horrendous thing happen. Someone died suddenly they were very close to. In the middle of their grief, their rage arises, and I would not ask them to not do anything other than just go into the rage fully, fully, which breaks the heart open even more, usually. In the beginning of our conversation, Robert, you talked about how all of our emotions can be seen as allies. And, you know, when it comes to anger, I think this is a topic that, within spiritual circles at least, is pretty controversial. I mean, anger is a destructive emotion. Anger, you know, causes harm, and there's no place for anger. It sounds like you're saying something quite different here. I think the statements you just said are based on a deep misunderstanding of anger. And I think for a lot of people doing that, especially in Buddhist circles, they're confusing anger and aggression. And of course, it's made worse by the fact a lot of Buddhist texts will translate hostility, ill will, hatred, and anger with the same word. I was surprised when I discovered that, but there's a, there's a conflating of that. And anger doesn't have to be ag- aggressiveness. It does not have to be an attack or out to do damage. And when we see anger as synonymous with aggression or hostility or ill will, we're right to label it negative, but the anger itself is not negative. What's negative is what we're doing with it. So in saying hostility, hostility is very mean-spirited. It's implicated in a lot of heart disease obviously not a healthy state to be in. But hostility is something we're doing with anger. It's a choice we're making, however unconsciously we may think we're involved in it. It is a choice. So it's not really anger's quote-unquote fault that we have slipped into hostility. It's what we're doing. We're allowing ourselves to channel it into hostility. We don't have to. I want to make sure that people are clear on the distinction here. So help me understand what anger is and its sort of clean-burning form, if you will, and then what this choice to be hostile or the expression of aggression, how is that different? How are aggression and hostility different from clean anger? Well, the first obvious sign is there's no heart. No heart in them at all. No vulnerability. And the impetus is to attack and is also dehumanizing of the other. In healthy anger, it can be fully expressed, but still healthy. We We don't dehumanize the other. We don't put them down. We're not out to attack them. We're more out to underline what we're saying emphatically. If we could be really loud in it, but we're emphasizing something, we're not there to bully or overpower the other. In aggressiveness, we are there to overpower the other or the situation. And I can feel myself segueing into shame here a little bit because a lot of times when we feel shame, our quick quote-unquote solution is to get aggressive. distracts us from our shame, and that aggressiveness can go towards others, or it can also be turned back on us, and of course that fuels the inner critic, it fuels that internalized shame and self-put-down. So I think it's, um, I've seen many people, especially men, be shifted quite dramatically by just knowing the difference between anger and aggression and having it shown to them. When they realize they've actually been aggressive to their children or their partner, and they realize what it would be like to be angry instead, it makes quite a difference. 
I wonder if you could give me a concrete example of someone getting angry and then understanding the difference between anger, aggression, and hostility. Let me let me wing it here. Then, just say, um, say a man's angry at his wife, and he's he's yelling at her, and he's telling her she's no good at this and she's bad at that. So he's shaming her. He's putting her down, and 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 she's quailing before him. She's frightened of him, and he's not hitting her. But there's a sense of in his in his anger that he could actually get physical because there's that edge. There's a dark edge to his voice. He's leaning toward her a lot. His hands are in fists. If he was to wake up in the midst of that and the anger kept flowing, he might say he's angry not at something she's done. He would address something she's done, a behavior. And if he saw her pulling back, he would lower his intensity. He'd be sensitive to how much she could take. He wouldn't just assume, well, I'm angry. I'm showing my feelings. You want to see my feelings? Here they are. He wouldn't play that game. He'd be attuned to her. His anger would be in the service of, the, of their relationship. It's a huge difference. In the first case, he doesn't give a damn about the relationship. He just wants to be right, and he's pointing his finger quite, uh, quite aggressively. Second case, he's using the anger as a, as a means of, of breaking through perhaps some emotional deadwood, some barrier to intimacy, and he's only doing enough to get his point across. He's not hammering her with it, and he has space for her response. He's still in relationship with her. In the first case, the aggressive one, he's not in relationship with her. He's lost touch with his caring for her completely. And aggression and hostility, are those different? Yeah, I think, I think hostility is just, it's just a, it's a form of aggressiveness. If you take it further, you have, you'd have outright violence. Because all of them are, are misuses of, of anger. Like violence, to me, is not a result of anger. It's, it's, an, it's a misuse of it. And I think it's time for us to stop blaming anger for this, because once we pathologize anger, and we all have anger, I don't, I've never met anyone who doesn't have anger. I've met some who have claimed not to have had it. We we cut ourselves off from a piece of our humanity, and then, and then our anger becomes part of our shadow. And if we're really invested in looking like we're not an angry person, we're going to really make sure our anger stays really locked up tight in our, in our shadow quarters. Now, Robert, you talked about how for women, getting in touch with their anger can release a lot of power, especially for women who haven't been in touch with that anger. How would a woman, once again, just sort of broadly speaking, or anyone who has been in denial of their anger, they start to come into it, how can they work with it skillfully so it becomes, as you're saying, healthy? Anger. What would be well, the they have process? To be taught in different modes of expression. Like sometimes suppressing anger is is an important thing to do. Other times, um, expressing anger very strongly is very important. Sometimes it's important to be able to sit mindfully with it in a meditative sense and just watch it circulate through the body. So it's important to kind of develop the tools for it, so that we, when anger arises in us, we have a number of options that we can go to, and our intuitive sense of the situation will draw us to perhaps the most fitting one. This is after, of course, having learned the hard way what doesn't work. So it's, a, it's like a re-education. Here's this intense state we call anger. We all have how to work with it directly, not to channel it into something else or avoid it, sublimate it, how to work with it. Mm-hmm. And once again, in terms of this task of developing emotional literacy, how would somebody know, oh, yeah, this is anger. I know what anger is. This is for sure it. I can identify it. What are the telltale signs? 
you have to be taught. For for example, some people, I've seen people, mostly male, being angry, and they didn't even know they were angry. The pulse rate was up, faces red, hands going into fists, and they would probably say, I don't feel angry, I feel calm. So sometimes people have to learn the initial signs. There's an increased blood flow to the, the arms, the hands. There's a sense of upper body inflation. Um, the jaw tightens, the brow shifts. There's a certain face that anger has. And if we put our, our face in that position, that frown and the jaw jutting, um, sometimes we'll feel a little rush of anger kicking in just by taking on those, the facial characteristics. So it's important to know, here's the signs. We tend to lean into the situation, um, and the jaw especially shows it. I mean, one of the ways I have of working with anger uh, is when people have advanced to a certain point is doing some work with their jaw, deep work with the jaw. There's so much in there, so much that has been bitten back, um, solar plexus, we contain a lot there. Shoulders get very tight. The hands want to do something. They want to wring a towel, pound on something, squeeze. So I'm going a little stray here, but I think with an anger expression, we have to find all the ways that work for us. What works? Chopping wood, wringing a towel, going for a workout, or just sitting on the cushion, zafu, and just, and just sitting with it for half an hour. This, they're all worth learning. So we have a lot in our toolkit when it comes to working with anger. If we don't, we're going to be we're going to be run by our anger, directly or indirectly. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, what would you say to someone who, in listening to this, says, you know, God, I have so much anger that I haven't allowed myself to feel, as you're describing the jaw, the fists. I'm ready to pound the pillows, but I'm afraid that I'm going to be actually, you know, overwhelmed with rage. How do I become a literate person here and not a rage, you know, explosion? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I would say, if possible, go to a suitably skilled psychotherapist. And, and do some work on it in a safe environment. Because many people are afraid what will happen if they go into their rage fully. And I've seen quite a few people, when their rage is kicking in fully, it mutates into joy. It's an odd thing to see that, because the passion is so full. It's so intense, so powerful, it transcends the content at a certain point and mutates. Not always into joy, but it doesn't, the person doesn't stay balled up and angry, pounding pillows for hours. There's a lot of movement. Mm-hmm. But that means learning to allow full expression, which is hard for many. Some are adept right away at doing full emotional expression. They can cry hard. They can re- be angry fully. They can shake with fear. They feel. Uh, but most of us have to learn to step from a partial expression to a full expression. Not that we should always express it fully, but there's a time and a place where it's appropriate to cry not just hard, but really hard. Say there's been incredible grief or something's really, really shocked you. The deep crying is very healing, but if we haven't gone to the core of our other emotions, it's really hard to go to, an, um, say, to our sadness's core. That's why the, another thing to factor in here is what I call the passions. Um, 
rage, lust, ecstasy, grief. These are all states, and they're, of course, emotionally based, that have the power to overwhelm us for better or for worse. And I think there's a right time and place to let ourselves go into those. But implicit in that is a loss of control. So that's difficult for us. We have to work on our fear of losing control. Maybe a loss of control characterized our childhood in a very unpleasant way. So as an adult, we've decided I do not want to lose control. I will not lose full control. I'll even be in control of my effort to lose control. That has to be exposed and skillfully worked with in a non-shaming way so the person can reach the point where they can let go of their usual control and see what happens. And invariably, they're surprised at how good it feels to let all this energy move through them unhindered. I've never seen it be destructive in 30 years, 35 years working with people. I've not seen it go into destructiveness. It goes into something much deeper, and usually the person ends up in a naturally settled meditative state at the end of it. They feel so grounded, they feel so present, and so alive. How do we make sure, especially when we're working with these so-called passions, that in our expression we're not creating harm or difficulty for other people? By paying very close attention and also by being aware that we have an impact. I mean, some teachings, in so many words, will say that whatever happens to the other, if I'm expressing myself as their business, as their stuff, what I would say is no, it's a mixture. So I have an impact, you have an impact, and we speak or share with another person. The more sensitive you are to that, the less likely you are to overwhelm or or hurt another person with too much expression. That's why it's good to to do it under some skilled guidance at first so you don't go too far. I remember one group I did once in Australia many decades ago. I had a bunch of assistants. I had 50 people in the group. And at one point I hear a loud scream, and I go across the room, and one of my assistants has been slapped really hard across the face by a participant. I said, what is going on? She said, well, Robert, you said not to hold back our feelings. And, of course, you see, that's, that's, she took my, what I said too literally. She did not hear the nuance in it or the, 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 is there an appropriateness to it. So I think as we open up more emotionally, we have to become more responsible for the impact we have. So if I'm angry at my partner, Diane, and she's really tired, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to shift my anger expression from what it would be if she was really well-rested and ready. I will still let her know what's going on, or maybe I won't if she's extra Maybe I'll, I'll just put it on hold and, 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 and mention it in the morning. It's about being sensitive to the other person and not forgetting them just because you're cutting loose or expressing yourself. Well, you know, this sounds really good to me, but developing this level of sensitivity and attunement to other people, I think that's quite hard for a lot of people. You're right. That's why so many, so, so few relationships really work well, because it is, it is very difficult, and it asks a lot of us. The irony is that an intimate relationship allows all of this to surface if both partners have a, an equivalent maturity and a passion for going to the heart of the matter. But it is difficult. You can't just do a few practices from a book you've picked up, and suddenly you have that. It requires um, a willingness to really look at oneself and to let self-exploration not be a weekend pursuit, but something that you do through your life. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper. I've done this for a long time. I have an unusually close bond with my wife, Diane, but we keep going deeper and deeper. The love doesn't have any bottom because we are both committed to a kind of a radical transparency. Mm -hmm. And the more we do it, the easier it gets. 
I think the the word that I'm cluing into is your use of the word maturity, that it takes such a maturity to be feeling what one's feeling and tuning into the other person and knowing how much to say, how much not to say, is this the right time? You know, being able to track all of that at once, that's the part that's... The thing is, you you don't have to track it all at once. What you have to do is learn how to track just a little bit at a time. So if I'm working with people who have done very little self-work, we don't jump into the deep end of the pool like you and I are right now. We, We start with the basics, let them get grounded in that. Maybe I'll have them work with someone else for a while so they, they can take time with it. There's no rush. But if they're passionate about growing and passionate about facing whatever's in the way, it doesn't take too long for uh, people like that to want more, to want to take it deeper, to get past the kind of reluctance to dive in and go, you know, I want more. I want to have, a, I want to have full intimacy. I want to have full-blooded, fully alive relationship. What is it going to take? Part of what it takes is patience. And spiritual stamina, you can't expect to suddenly jump into that place of maturity right away. But still, if there are steps toward it, I think it's important to clarify, here's the steps toward it. Go at the pace that works for you. If you go too fast, you won't digest what has just happened. Mm-hmm. You'll be too ambitious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and life sure gives us the lessons along the way. I mean, often we think we've arrived at a certain point and life brings us to our knees and go, oh my God, I didn't really deal with that. Or there's more to go. I mean, when I was younger, I thought all I had to do was transcend a bunch of stuff for myself. This is way back in the 70s, early 80s. And I had all these incredible state experiences and, and blissfulness and consciousness and sleep, all kinds of things that made my spiritual resume quite big, real heavy tome. But I still was the same person day to day in my relationships. I still manifested the same reactivity, the same small-mindedness. It was all there. And that's when I started to realize, and it took a while, that my job was to relate more and more skillfully to these qualities in me, knowing that some of them might never, ever change. They might just be like mineral deposits in my psyche, there until I die, and beyond perhaps. And I found more self-compassion, more self-acceptance, and turning toward these qualities that I kind of thought, ooh, that's not me, I don't want people to see that. And and that was a huge shift for me, and implicit in that was I had to learn how to turn toward my pain which I was a master at at bypassing, getting away from, uh, working with partially. And then I found the more I turned toward it, the more fluid and graceful, vital my life became. Now, you said something very interesting here, Robert, that I want to go into a little bit. I have met very many spiritual teachers who are quite gifted at introducing people to expanded states of consciousness, sitting in boundless being for hours upon hours. But they don't seem very gifted in the relational or the emotional realm when it comes to how they interact with other people or the way their organizations are run or things like that. And it's curious to me to see that there doesn't seem to be often a carryover from the immersion in these deep states of spiritual realization to emotional literacy. How do you understand that gap? Well, first of all, I think those are states, and and, and people get enamored of the states, and if the teacher's really adept at it, the students get kind of hooked on it, they get high on it, but, but but whatever is in the shadows tends to stay there. So I see people have done decades of non-dual work, studied with this teacher, that teacher, 
they're still suffering. They're finally going, you know what, I've done all that work. I guess they have to come to that point, all that time sitting on the cushion, all that non-dual bliss, and I still don't know how to relate to my wife or my husband. I still don't treat my kids well. I still watch. I still look at pornography. I'll say, well, welcome to, here's the shadows. We've got to work on your shadow. We have to go into those places of your conditioning you were trying to get away from. You use those spiritual practices not to illuminate and see your full self, but to get away from places in yourself that were really unpleasant or dark or otherwise disowned. And I think there's a deeper awakening when we are fully embodied in it. So, I mean, I, I'm preaching to the choir a bit, I know, but I think the embodied approach is so, so important. And, and I would say the relational part is crucial. So I would say my work in basics terms is honoring, equally honoring the personal interpersonal, transpersonal, or the, oh, how can I, personal, relational, spiritual. We tend to bypass the relational element, like it doesn't matter. Everything exists through relationships, so to me it's crucial that we include it, and not just an intellectual way. And to do that, we have to get into our personal stuff. We have to do what some teachers decry, as, oh, that's just your story. We have to know our history intimately. We have to connect the dots between past and present, so that we are no longer victims of our conditioning or transcenders of it, apparent transcenders of it. So I see a lot of what you're just describing. You asked me the question. I see it all over the place. And, of course, I work with many people who are in that zone, teacher and student alike. And it's like we can float above it for a long time, avoid it, but sooner or later life calls us back to face all the stuff we've pushed aside or tried to get away from. So what I'm saying is a lot less popular. I'm saying turn toward that messy, dark, unpleasant stuff. It's not glamorous. It's not romantic. It doesn't mean a painless weekend and you're enlightened. It's, but it's, to my experience, it's more growthful because you're on track. You're not turning away from the stuff. And I love these three dimensions, personal, interpersonal, and transpersonal. And I yeah. wonder if you can just talk a little bit about each and how you would see somebody working in all three dimensions, would you see somebody, you know, equally paying attention to all three, or it depends on? It depends, but yeah. I, I I work with all three because when I'm working with someone who's in severe trauma, I don't bring it in right away. But at a certain point, um, the transpersonal comes in because that that can that that's the way it creates a container to hold it, and within that container, it's like a sanctuary. It's also relational. That person's in relationship with me, with Diane, also with their own um, wounded elements. And the more I know their story, the more I know the details of what happened when they were little or around their birth, the more I can connect it to why they do the things that they do now. And it's usually quite a quick process. It doesn't require years of psychoanalysis to connect the dots. When it all works together, there's a, certain, there's a joy. I've had many people have um, spiritual breakthroughs of knowing who and what they were. They got that, they awakened to their non-dual nature and even beyond through going into their emotions right to the core and awakening something deep, deep in the body. And I hate seeing the body treated as an it, kind of like this is an impediment and people say, oh, the emotional body or the body. There's such a kind of um, perhaps uh, unwitting distancing from the body. And I think it's important to really reclaim our body right down to our toes, like right doing really paying attention to the body, including emotionally. And then we ground our awakening. So if I go into a very, very deep state in sleep or dreams or wake, I've learned I like to, I like to be grounded in it. 
I like to, I love the expansion, but to be grounded feels so good. It means I'm functional. I can be in that state and still work with people or pick up groceries or drive the car skillfully. There's no spacing out. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not as glamorous as just going into these exa- into exalted states and nervicopal samadhi and all these. I think that's very problematic. People get so attached to that and enamored of teachings that basically overemphasize that. Okay, so the transpersonal dimension is this boundless sense of being, you could say, non-dual, and, and, the, and the role that that yeah. can have in holding all of our experience. You've also been yeah, talking... Like the train I just did last week, I mean, there was a lot of that happening. Well, sometimes it would happen, I'd have everyone sit still and we'd just bask in it. Other times I'd just keep plugging away doing the deep trench work. But it was a feeling, it's a, there's such a lovely sense of presence to that, of, of, of sentient awareness and the mystery of it. When I open to it myself deeply, I end up, I just feel like I'm face-to-face with pure mystery with a capital M, and I am that at the same time. At that point, speech stops, my words come to a halt, and just resting in that. Some time passes, and if I'm with others, then more work happens. It becomes even more easy and natural to work with some old wounding or whatever is in the way. So none of the stuff that's going on in a person, to me, needs to be seen as lower or more mundane. Um, It's all worth paying really close attention to. Okay, but I'm just going to keep unpacking this to make sure I'm following you. Sure. So the transpersonal dimension, then the interpersonal dimension is obviously you're talking about... Relational. Yeah, you and your partner, yeah. working with other people, attuning... And to realize, Tammy, that everything exists through relationship. I mean, everything is in relationship to something else. It's all it's part of the fabric of our being. So um, I think part of our work is to reach a point where we stop avoiding relationship. It's all tied together. It's all interconnected and once we get that in our bones part of the beauty of getting that is that we realize that what we do to another being we do to ourselves so instead of trying to be altruistic or trying to be caring about things that are going on in the world that are really terrible we start to feel ourselves as the other we, we get to our core that what i do to you i'm doing to me and that makes me treat you with much more care mm-hmm and then what do you mean then by the personal dimension? Um, that which is uniquely associated with, with you as you, um, formation of your egoity, your personality, your conditioning. A lot of it is the, is the conditioning. We all have conditioning from our early lives. No matter how happy our childhood was, there it is. And if we don't see it for what it is, it will tend to run us, however subtly. And um, I honor the personal. When I sit down with someone new, or when I used to, because I don't work like that way much more anymore, because I'm retiring more from that, I want to know their story. And I'm really interested. Not the, not the dramatics, but what happened. And, all, and it always ties together with how they're operating now, with the habits they have, um, how they treat partners and friends, their children. It all fits. It doesn't excuse it, but it explains it. Once they see the connections, then they're more open to doing deep work. Mm-hmm. And so that's the personal. And I, I love stories. Uh, um, and I think it's a, it, it's a disservice to most people to, to, to say to them, this is just your story. Like, this is drop it. And you don't really need that. You know what? Without that, you're a partial human being. You could be seemingly enlightened, but your enlightenment is partial. You're part of you has been left behind. It's like teachers that run astray like Rajneesh. I know, um, Arida, I know I, my intuition is there were major pieces of, for each of them that were left in the shadows and not touched because they were so outshined by 
their spiritual capacities. I think those that's, those are warnings to all of us. You know, develop your full self. Develop all your ways of intelligence, emotional, kinesthetic, interpersonal, intellectual. Develop all of it. Bring an integral approach to it. Like, treat it all as worth worthy of your attention and your love. All of it. Now, in talking about this personal dimension and our individual conditioning, one of the points you address in your book on emotional intimacy is the pre-verbal origins of much of our emotional response. I wonder if you can speak some to that, the pre-verbal origins of how we're responding emotionally in situations. Often things happen to us that were very significant when we could either weren't speaking or our speech was very, very limited, like when we were maybe two years old, something like that. And events at that time actually make a real difference. Someone may have been in a, a, a very serious accident or, 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 or been uh, be, beaten brutally by a parent. There's a whole long list of things that can happen, and it kind of resets the nervous system. And um, to get to those dimensions, we can't just I can't just sit and chat with someone. I have to actually work with them emotionally because uh, their memory may be kind of faulty going back that far, but emotional memory begins at birth. The part of the brain that deals with emotional memory is fully formed at birth. So we can, for example, I don't see my birth, but I remember it. And I've checked out the details and my mother confirmed everything. There's, But the memory was emotional. So in pre-verbal work, you're working with the emotions and also with the body to help someone perhaps untangle some connections that were made because they were overwhelmed at a certain point or they had a very difficult birth or, or their mother left them to scream every night and never came to get them. Um, the list goes on and on and on. And, and I've seen the evidence of it in so many sessions, so much work with people that I, 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 I know it's very, very important to include that in our self-work. Even though it's hard to retrieve that. It's hard to retrieve the, um, the details. Now, why do you say that our pre-verbal memories begin at birth? What about before birth, while we were in the womb? They do. They go back. The, the nervous system is developed. It, it goes back before birth, too. I, I should have added that. I mean, the, 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 not in the first trimester, I don't think, but after that, there's a, there's the nervous system is developing. There's evidence that the, the baby in utero can, can hear. They certainly feel. They certainly pick up what the mother's going through, and they and, and they can probably attune to the external environment, whatever music's on, whatever voices are being displayed loudly. It's all there, and we're so sensitive then. There's so much. Now, particularly when it comes to an emotion like fear, it seems that there could be some serious preverbal origins to our fear. And I've seen that in many people. Many yeah. people with a fear... It seemingly it wasn't just from being bullied at school or, or you know, having a, a harsh parent, but often it would, it would go back even earlier to where they were left in a situation where their fear kicked in and there was no relief from it. So then their solution to the fear, for example, might have been to, to shut down their system, which is not a volitional decision. It's an organismic decision. The system's in danger, shut it down. It's like having the cord wrapped around the neck too tightly in the womb as one's emerging from the womb. The system shuts down to survive, but the trouble is, later in life, we may revert to that when we're in challenging situations without knowing that we're doing it. Suddenly we're in a difficult, challenging situation with a partner or friend, and we shut down emotionally. We disappear. We dissociate. 
to a large degree, because that's what we did to survive when we were very little. When that's all exposed and brought into the open, it doesn't have to be our life sentence. It can be worked through. Okay, but when that's all exposed, I mean, yeah. often it's, most of the time it's not exposed. How does that become yeah. exposed? It becomes exposed when someone is uh, really troubled by a behavior they keep manifesting again and again and again, and they go for skilled help, and hopefully the, the therapist or guide will uncover that through skillful conversation, body work, emotional work, gestalt, whatever it takes, they'll uncover that early history. And then the dots are connected intellectually at first and then emotionally and physically until it makes sense. And part of the answer here is to, is to, is to find out what had to be suppressed at that time. For example, a little boy who's really terrified of his father from early on, he's got a lot of fear. And he's also got a lot of anger, but the anger has to be suppressed. So the chem- anger mutates into fear at that age, and the fear and the anger remains in the shadows. Part of the work with a man like that is to get him in touch with that early rage, which can't be done right away, but can be done for sure. Once he does expresses what had to be suppressed then, there's an increased freedom. He now has more power. His, some of the biochemistry of fear now becomes the biochemistry of anger, and he's able to move. He's mobilized. What was immobilized then becomes mobilized. I guess to ask my question in a different way, do you think sure. that therapy is the way to access and bring forward these pre-verbal conditioned responses that we have, or is there some other way that people could get at this material? Well, I think people get at this material in other ways. Sometimes it at least get started through maybe intense spiritual practice, uh, shamanic rituals. Things can bring it up, and a lot of therapy is not equipped to deal with it. I mean, it's not like every like every therapist can do this. It takes a lot of skill and maturity for a therapist, and they've had to have done that for themselves too, to go in there and be with the person and create enough safety for that to emerge. Because in those states, one does not usually feel very safe, and if the therapist is tentative or hesitant. Um, the person is probably going to shut down and not want to go there. And so I think it can open up in many ways. I've had many clients who's um, got blown open in this way during long meditation retreats in which the teachers there didn't know how to deal with it, but they, it was open, it was there, they can feel that it's pre-verbal, they're overwhelmed by it, it's terrifying, it might classify as a spiritual emergency sometimes, but it's opened. Um, it can happen in a lot of different situations, but I think um, the ideal environment to me would be one that combines really skilled, body-centered, emotionally literate psychotherapy and a knowledge of spiritual realms and ability to be open spiritually. That's the ideal. And the person is, is being held in that environment and healing can occur. But see, implicit in this is the person even would want to go there. Many people would have chosen not to go there and just live and adapt to that old wounding act like it's their real self, and just go through their lives without ever having resolved their original wounding. Mm -hmm. Now, Robert, you call fear the dragon. Uh, The section of the book on fear is meeting the dragon. Why do you talk about fear as a dragon? Because it it seems kind of big to a lot of people. You can kind of sense the fangs, the smell of it. It's it's something that we tend to um, have an aversion to. 
And but I like the dragon image because in the, the myth of the dragons, usually there's a treasure to be had. You can't get the treasure unless you get past the dragon. You face the dragon, do battle with it, whatever. But you have to meet the dragon, and you can't just seduce it or chat to it politely. You have to actually approach it, which is an act of great courage. And I think for a lot of us, when we stay distant from our fear, it seems bigger than it really is. And the dragon's a good symbol of that, like our fear becomes enlarged through our aversion to it. When I approach my fear closely, others do, what I usually see, I come across is not a, uh, something fearsome. I come across uh, an earlier version of myself quite often that's really, really distraught, shaky, and and what I've learned is to, is to approach that with great love and compassion and simultaneously embrace it, embrace that younger version of me, and protect him. And then then when I do that, I'm quite capable of stepping forward, taking strong action, doing whatever is needed. But I'm not expecting that frightened part of me to step up to the plate and drive the car, do the body work, uh, do whatever, do the interview even, do whatever. It's, And I see when people approach their fear that way, there's a sense of, 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 instead of trying to get away from the fearful places in them, the frightened child in them, all of that, when they approach that, what's beautiful, their heart opens spontaneously. The tears often come. There's a sense of embracing this fragile place in us that is, is still really vulnerable, hasn't learned to be an adult, doesn't have any armor, and is basically emotionally naked. And is fully deserving of our love and our care, even though we may be embarrassed a little to approach it. I think that's part of the healing. Now that step of holding that younger part of us in a loving embrace, how do we generate that kind of pattern inside of ourselves where that's our response instead of some well, other you know, kind of response? Sometimes I'll have people that just don't want to go near this. Oh my God, I, I just don't like this inner child talk or any, anything that resembles that. I'll say, well, imagine someone... Um, another someone who's not you, here's this child. You see a child that's really, really upset, has just been beaten badly by a parent. When you look at that child, what do you feel? And often they'll say, oh, I feel sad, I feel angry. I'll say, no, I'll say, no, imagine that's you. Of course, I'll take more time doing this. I'll be more skillful than this. But they'll, many people have an easy time feeling great care for someone else when they're hurting. When it comes to themselves and their own wounded elements, they tend to treat those with some aversion. You know, what I'm reflecting on, Robert, as I'm listening to you, is how in my own life I've had the benefit of working for many years with a skilled psychotherapist who I think has been able to create a safe environment that's helped me go into a lot of this difficult material. And I hear you saying how, first of all, many therapists don't even have the ability. They don't have the kind of depth. They don't have the kind of training or personal experience to offer that to people, how many people aren't interested in it. And what I feel, though, is some sense that the kind of psychotherapy I've been privileged to receive is not readily available to people. And I I notice there's a longing in me that I wish that it was more readily available. And I share the same longing. And that's part of the reason, like my advanced age, that I I just feel this huge passion to train other people to to do the work that I can only probably do another four or five years. I 
I have so many people ask me if I can work with them. I have to say, I, I, I can't do that. I, I, I'm too booked. But thank God I have people now I'm trained who I trust. I say, you can, I refer you to this person, that person. We've done enough sessions with them. Maybe you, I'll work with you, maybe not. But at least that's available. And I, but I do feel this, a certain sadness that there's, there's, there's a lot of this is not available. Because I see many people have been damaged through their therapy experiences. And that, and so they're very hesitant to start up again. And you obviously had a had some really skilled, caring help, which makes a huge difference. To be with someone who can hold the container and yet also put you in the crucible at the right time and and challenge you in a way that has a lot of heart, that's not common, but at least it's there. And I would love to see more of it. And um, that's partially why I think I wrote the book on emotional intimacy and did the program Knowing Your Shadow, so that I could spread out what I've learned in a way that's, not as deep as doing in-person work, but it's certainly better than doing nothing. It introduces people, and those that are really curious or eager will probably take it further. They'll not jump in deeper. One of the uh, questions I've been asking is, is there a way to further create access and affordability for the kind of depth transformation that we're talking about here? And I'd be curious to know what you think about that, what your thoughts are. Well, I, think, I think you can up to a point through through um, teleseminars, books, stuff, stuff that you're doing on Sounds True. I think that's up to a certain point, but there's a threshold to pass that. And, of course, only a certain percentage of people want to go past that for a number of reasons. But I think it's important to say, here it is. If you want to take it deeper, here's where you can go. If not, it's great that you've started the process. And I don't know if we can do much more than that. I know I, I used to work with 50 people in a group. Now I have a week-long, I do a lot of, we do week-long groups. I've cut the number even from 12 to 10, so everyone gets even more quality attention. I can work with each person two or three, four times in that week. All the group dynamics, it fits. Or Diane and I used to do couples groups, and we stopped because we realized the couples would get more value for their money if they came to us for individual intensives. The couple just sat with us for four or five hours in a week. Um, Instead of spending all that money for a weekend group with us with a bunch of other couples. But again, that's, there's only so many people that can be reached in that really deep way. But I still think it's really important to make the beginning levels of it very accessible, like you are, it sounds true. I think it's so important. Now, Robert, I just have one final question for this first part of our conversation together, which is we've talked some about fear and how fear can be like a dragon. And I know that in your own life, you've been dealing with some health challenges and some health challenges that some people might feel quite fearful working with. And I'd be curious to know how you've personally dealt with fear and particularly the fear of death. Well, the short answer is by getting very, very close to the fear really, really close. And of course, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, kind of, uh, it was a pretty malignant level of cancer too in 2008. And I was, I was really scared at first. So was Diane. We were crying and we were really scared and, and didn't know where to turn because I, I had a gut sense. I do not want radiation. I do not want surgery. I just knew it. And, uh, but I didn't know where else to turn. So I was reading all the literature, taking, trying different supplements. And we were terrified but then once we moved to Ashland, I found some people who could work with me naturally, and I also worked internally with it. My fear started to shift into a sense of profound acceptance, and part of that was uh, because I learned to listen to the cancer. 
I would listen, I'd meditate deeply, Diane was Reiki master, we did all this work so I could tune into it. And the message was very straightforward. So Robert, slow the hell down. I mean, not for weekend or not, slow down. So I I dropped my private practice, um, individual sessions and couples for almost a year, which was a big blow to our income, but we I had to do it. And I got very still. I got to meet my fear very up close, and um, I felt even more. I've had experiences when I was younger with death that were very, and fear that were very, very powerful and overwhelming, perhaps even more than the cancer. And I learned to make peace with it, at the same time taking good care of it, meditating more, uh, working out more, um, and just softening and softening, because I've been very driven, very successful and very driven. And since then, I've had I've I've gotten busy again, and I just I've I've recently took two months off in Mexico and just again sitting with the cancer, swimming, meditating, no work, and got even softer and softer, and it feels really good because I I feel pretty strong on myself, but the softness is so welcome, and every time I remember the cancer, it takes me in there, and I don't know if it's if it's going to kill me or not, but I'm kind of at peace with it, and also. The sense of being so close to death has made Diana and me, we were very close before, but even closer. We're both very aware of our mortality, and um, I'm aware of death a number of times during the day, and I feel an intimacy with it. Not like I want to die tomorrow. I'd be pissed off if I died tomorrow, but I feel um, not just closer to death, but closer to life at the same time. The closer I am to death, the closer I am to life. And... um, I'm grateful for that. And I, I hope my cancer lets me live another 20 years or more, but it might not. So life is much more precious when I'm this close to the edge. So this idea that you sometimes hear about in spiritual circles that one can become, quote-unquote, fearless, it sounds like your approach is something different. It is. Like, I, I, I don't feel fearless, but I don't... but. I don't have a problematic orientation to fear. So when fear arises, I recognize it as fear. I can sense me perhaps what age is kicking in myself. I, and, I, and I relate to it, and it very quickly usually my, I feel myself expanding. And when I expand, then fear is excitement, it's vitality, it's life energy, and it's not a problem. So I don't, I don't mind when fear kicks in. I've had times in my life when I was younger where I had extreme terror, unrelenting. So I've had to sit with... Um, very deep fear in a lot of my life and just I didn't want to but it forced me to get intimate with it there's nothing else I could do after a while nothing else I could do and the cancer just has um, amplified that and to this point now I don't find the cancer doesn't it's not interfering in my life I mean it, I don't know if it's healing or not I, I don't want to have another biopsy to find out but the blood work I'm having indicates that I'm pretty healthy and I'm happier I'm softer and, and uh I don't know what else to say. It just opens to me to the mystery more and more deeply. And for somebody to fully understand what you're saying when you say you become intimate with it when it's there, so the fear arises and you're becoming intimate, what does that mean you're doing? It means I, I, um, I turn toward the fear. I take my attention into it, the bodily sensations. I, I'm aware of how I'm breathing with it. And I also start to sense... Um, the depths of it, the, the, its mental components. So in other words, I get close enough to it where I can see 
its mind, its bodily components, its energetic manifestations and configurations and all of that. And and the closer I get to it, the less afraid I am. I mean, I've said elsewhere, when we remain outside our fear, we're actually trapped in it because we haven't explored it. We haven't seen that it's just contracted. It's like a contracted fist. And when the... um, when you relax the hand, suddenly the fist is gone. There's an open hand. There's excitement. There's life energy. You contract it again. There's fear. And sometimes fear is functional. It's adaptive. Other times it's maladaptive. But I've I've learned the hard way, I guess, to not make a problem out of fear. And when it arises, I don't see it as a sign that I'm not evolving. All my emotions are still here. I mean, I still get angry, feel shame, cry. It's, it's all there. And I don't mind it. When I was younger, I kind of thought, well, I shouldn't have some of this stuff going on, but it's part of my humanity. And I find it makes people who work with me have a much easier time with me because I'm, I'm, they can sense that I'm right there with them. I'm not just a, a distant teacher. I'm connected with them emotionally, physically, emotionally. You know, there's a plug-in in. Mm-hmm. I've been speaking with Robert Augustus Masters, and this is part one of our conversation on emotional intimacy. Robert has written a new book published by Sounds True called Emotional Intimacy, a comprehensive guide for connecting with the power of your emotions. And he also has a new audio series with Sounds True called Knowing Your Shadow, Becoming Intimate with All That You Are. Robert, thank you so much for the genuine conversation. I really appreciate it. So welcome. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.